name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. My wife has an idea. I thought I'd share it in light of uh, the things George shared, and that is that we changed the name of Christmas to Gismas. <laughs> and uh, I kind of actually like that, you know, really, because as far as the secular holiday is concerned, Gismas, Gismas probably would best represent what uh, what we do at Christmas. We share gifts with one another. For of course, for those of us that follow Jesus, Christmas is a time we remember you know, something much greater than just sharing gifts together, and uh, we remember. Uh, the coming of the Lord Jesus. Christmas poses a particular challenge, I think, for those of us that have heard the story since we were children. I, I think as old as I am now, I've probably watched or, or seen you know, 20, 30, 40 Christmas pageants over the course of my life. Some of you who are older than me probably have seen more than me. You've listened to countless Christmas sermons over the course of your life, I'm sure, if you've been following Jesus for much time at all. You've probably sung, uh, of the 10 to 20 Christmas carols that we sing every year, you've probably sung them, what, (laughs) you know, 30 or 40 times every Christmas, you know, so you've been singing those same songs forever. And uh, so it's almost made me hesitant to talk about Christmas because it's so familiar with us that we tend, I think, to tune out the, the Christmas message at this time of year, but I'm going to do it nonetheless. You know, if, uh, if you've known about the Christmas story, you, you know about Mary and Joseph and how Gabriel came to them and told them what was about to happen. You know the story of the journey to Bethlehem and then no room in the inn, being born in a stable and then laid in a manger. We know the story of the mysterious wise men who came to find Jesus following a great star in the sky. We know of Herod then later trying to kill Jesus and not succeeding, of course, but killing all the two-year-old boys and under there in uh, in Bethlehem. We know that story. And uh, we, we hear the story every year, but I, I tend to think we, uh, we maybe, don't, maybe don't hear it because we hear it so much. And... Uh, but this is the greatest story on earth, right? Other than maybe the story of the resurrection of Jesus, you know, and, and really you can't divide the two stories. They're really one and the same. Maybe two sides to the, to the same coin, bookends if you would. I mean, the story of the birth of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus is, is the greatest story that's ever been told because we tell the story of the transcendent God who would choose to become like us, mortal creatures, He would choose to limit himself. In Philippians, Paul says of Jesus that he emptied himself. doesn't say exactly what he emptied himself of, but, uh, you know, I I have my own thoughts on that, that he emptied himself of some of his attributes, but not his nature. But he didn't come into the world as a powerful child, I mean, a powerful king. He came into the world as this, this little defenseless baby, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Ann and I went to a SBCV dinner, and, and Nathan and Jancy sat with us, and uh, little Jane, she's, she's just a newborn, right? And so I got to hold Jane, and uh, we were singing some Christmas carols, and I was holding little Jane in my hands, and so she's here in front of me like this, and I think the carol was Silent Night, 
which speaks of, of Jesus, you know, coming as a babe. And, uh, and as I held Jane, and I'm looking at her, and I'm thinking in, in just a, in a, uh, I don't know what adjective to use, how I was feeling at the moment, but as I'm holding Jane, and we're singing this carol, and I'm recognizing that God, God, became this little, in, defenseless little child, with no ability to care for itself, and God was wrapped up in, in that sort of humanity. So this really is the, the greatest story. So I read this week as I was reading and thinking about what I wanted us to do for the next couple of weeks as we approach the, the actual day we celebrate the birth of Jesus. I, I read somewhere that sometimes it's a good thing for us to focus in on some of the details of the Christmas story so that we might see it in a fresh way. Maybe to take out a magnifying glass and take a sliver of the, of the Christmas story and look at it in some greater detail and see if that doesn't give us a, a fresh perspective. And so I'm calling this uh, two week, uh, these two talks for the next two weeks, uh, Christmas in the Details. And we're going to look at uh, just a couple of verses actually. Uh, this Sunday and next, and, and look at the details of the verses and see if it doesn't kind of just uh, encourage us, give us a fresh perspective, you know, again this year on, on, the Christmas, on the Christmas celebration, the coming of the Lord Jesus. If there's one word that always, that always surfaces every Christmas that, that sort of encapsulates Christmas, and, and I think others, I mean, David's opening remarks, George's remarks, I, I would... I would you know, love is it, but joy is another word that sort of captures Christmas for us, that this is a season of, of, of joy where we really experience something in our hearts that just makes us feel happy at this time of the year. And, and it's reflected in the carols. Let me, just, let me just give you an example. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Oh, come all you faithful, joyful, and triumphant. Shepherds, why this jubilee? Why your joyous strains prolong? These are all different carols. Good Christian men rejoice with heart and soul and voice. Joyful all ye nations rise and join the triumph of the skies. With angelic hosts proclaim Christ is born in Bethlehem. So... I think we get the picture, right? The joy just seems to be encapsulated in this season where we celebrate the coming of God to become one like us. And, uh, you know, I've noticed as Christians, we tend to want to draw this kind of fast and hard distinction between joy and happiness. You ever notice that? We say joy and happiness, they're not the same. Happiness is circumstantially based. Joy is based on this sense of well-being in our soul. And I, and I don't want to say anything contrary to that. I believe that ultimately there's some truth to that, that there, there is a divide between joy and happiness. But I also don't want to cut this too deeply because joy and happiness are, they, they, they are somewhat tied together. And joy brings happiness. And happiness can bring joy to us. There, there's a linking there. Where does joy in Christmas, where does it come from for us? Well, I think we can find the answer to that in the Lucan story of the birth of Jesus. If you have your Bibles, we're going to look at just a few verses. Actually, we're only going to look at one verse, but I want to read several verses that are around that verse. So Luke chapter 2, Christmas story, beginning with verse 8. So if, this, if, this, if these two talks are called, you know, a Christmas in the details, this one's going to be called joy in the details, okay? Or Christmas in the details where we see joy. So beginning with verse 8, it's the story where the shepherds are out in the field. 
And we read verse 8, Luke chapter 2. In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flocks. Then the angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. Now, one moment, they're out there tending sheep. It's in the middle of the night. Probably all of them, but maybe one of them is asleep. And, and all of a sudden, this, this thing happens that scares them out of their wits. At first, there's at least one angel, but then there's a, a host of angel, an army angel. So you can imagine how scary that was to them. But so the first words out of the angel's mouth are, you know, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid because I, I have some great, I have some good news of great joy that's going to be for all the people. So what is the, what is the news of great joy? Well, it's found in verse 11. And this is the verse that we're going to look at with some detail. Verse 11 says, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So if we're looking for Christmas joy, I think we can find it in this verse. And I want to show you, for the course of the next few minutes, I want to show you four Four reasons why this verse is, is a statement of great joy for us. And, and hopefully we'll be encouraged. And hopefully we'll kind of regain perspective on Christmas. Or maybe not regain it, but at least see it clearly why this is such a joyful time for those of us who follow Jesus. Now, here's the first thing. Joy is found in this verse because it reminds us of the promises of God. It reminds us that God keeps, not just the promises of God, excuse me, that God keeps his promises to us, all right? So if you look at the verse, it says, the angel said to them, born this day in the city of David. Now, what's so significant about that? Well, the city of David was not Jerusalem. The city of David was Bethlehem. It was where David had uh, been born and raised. I thought about this, you know, David was a shepherd boy, and, and so it's quite likely that many times he'd been in these very same places that these shepherds are now watching their sheep. So David had probably been on these same hills watching sheep, you know, many years earlier. Bethlehem today is an, is an Arab town under Palestinian control, but back then it was just a tiny Jewish community, tiny, tiny village. In 1867, a Boston pastor by the name of Phillips Brooks, he visited the Holy Land, he visited Bethlehem that year, and upon his return from there, he wrote a really famous Christmas carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem, how still uh, we see the lie above the deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. He wrote that 150 years ago. So chances are, when he was there 150 years ago, Bethlehem was still this, probably this very small village. Today, that's not how it is at all. It's a major town bustling with tourism. They say, I've never been there, but they say that the streets are small. You, you get crammed in with all the people. It's just, it's full of busyness. Everybody's there to go to the Church of the Holy Nativity, which is supposedly where Christ was built. And there's a church, one of the oldest churches in the Holy Land have been built in Bethlehem at that place, 1,700 years or 1,750 years ago. And of course, it's been added on and, and, and grown. Bethlehem is called the city of David because it's where he grew up. But the neat thing about the city of David was that 700 years prior to this pronouncement by the angels, God had already sent a prophetic promise that the, the coming king would be born in Bethlehem. 
Now, the reason I know that is because we find the prophecy in the Old Testament in Micah's prophecy. And in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, let me read it for you in its entirety. It's, uh, in fact, I thought maybe this, this, this might be what I do next week, uh, Christmas in the details. We may look at this passage from Micah because it's really got a lot in it. But listen to it as I read. It's Micah 5.2, Bethlehem Ephrata, you are small among the clans, clans of Judah. One will come from you to be a ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of the rulers' brothers will return to the people of Israel, and he will stand and shepherd them in the strength of the Lord, in the majestic name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will extend to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. Now, I really don't want to go into the details of that prophecy. I just want you to know that 700 years prior to Jesus being born, God had pronounced by promise that he was going to send this king and he would be born in in Bethlehem. And all the Jews knew this, and we know they knew this because in the story in Matthew's gospel where the Magi come to uh, find the king and they show up in Jerusalem and they say, where is he supposed to be born? Herod doesn't know, but he he asked his wise men, you know, the religious folks, and they say, oh, that's easy. He's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. They knew he was to be born in Bethlehem. And you remember the Magi are sent to Bethlehem to find him. And when they find him, they're supposed to come back and uh, and tell Herod about it. That was all 700 years prior to the birth of Jesus. I've always found it funny. This is just kind of a tangential note. But I've always found it funny that nobody was sent to Bethlehem to investigate. Do you you find that strange? I mean, these Magi show up and, and, and nobody's caring. Nobody, I guess... You know, I'm not sure why they wouldn't have cared, but, but Herod didn't seem to care. He didn't send any troops to find out, you know, anything about this. The religious people, you would think that the religious people who are supposedly looking for Messiah would, you know, would have gone. I guess their thought was, how can three Gentile men from far off tell us about when our king is going to be born? They, they, could, they, didn't, have enough, they didn't have enough gumption even to go, go look uh, for themselves. Now, granted, the angels are not magi, and magi are not angels, but when the angels come to the shepherds and they tell them that Messiah has been born in the city of David, unlike the theologians of, of, of Jerusalem, they immediately drop what they have are doing and they go to Bethlehem. They say, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that we've, uh, that we've been, been told. So, I, again, I don't want you to lose my point. My my point is there's such joy in that statement because God had promised this. This is the fulfillment of God's promise. And, 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 And what it tells us, the reason there's such joy in this is because God keeps his promises. What God says he's going to do, God is going to do. And this is this is 700 years later, him fulfilling what he said he was going, what he said he was going to do. This isn't the only promise that God made. He made some other promises concerning Jesus. One of them was that he would be born of a virgin. So let's go on to the second second reason this verse should bring joy to our hearts is because it reminds us that God has been, in this particular case for them, that God is present with them. That God is, is actually with them. Look at the text again. Again, you should know it by heart. But unto you is born this day in the city of David. Unto you is born this day. Three words, born this day. On that very day, 
God had been born into the earth and he had, into the world. He had become a baby and his name was Jesus. And you'll remember that God would say his name will be called Emmanuel because God, Emmanuel meaning God is with us. Now there's two aspects about the birth of Jesus that I want you to realize this morning. One is that there is no miracle associated with the physical birth of Jesus. Now, I'm not talking about the virgin birth, I mean, the, the fact that Jesus was born to a virgin. That was a miracle that took place nine months earlier when the Bible says that God impregnated, you know, I'm going to be really kind of maybe coarse, I don't mean to be coarse, but just, uh, what's the term I'm looking for? Uh, I just want to be real. God had brought about the conception of Jesus in Mary. He supplied the genetic material for Jesus to be born. Mary did, not, Mary did not conceive in the way that all ladies, all other women in the world have conceived through the impregnation by a, by a man, by a man's seed. He, he didn't come that way. God, God did it. And so that Mary, when she gave birth, she was, she was giving birth as a virgin, some woman who had never had sex with any man. She'd never had a physical relationship with a man. Jesus was born different than that. But here's the point that I want you to see is that after that, as best we can tell, there's nothing miraculous about the birth of Jesus. Jesus is born into the world the way all the rest of us were born into the world. Mary had, I can, you know, Mary was uncomfortable. I've never, I'm not a woman, but I, I've watched my wife bear six, and I've watched you ladies that uh, Anna being one of the more recent, being really uncomfortable all the time. You see, so, so Mary was uncomfortable, and when the time came, Mary delivered like all of you other women have delivered babies. Jesus was born in a natural way. Now, it was unusual circumstances. You know, we hear stories all the time of people being born like, you know, in their car because they don't make it to the hospital or somebody has to deliver in the mall or dad's there or whatever. Those are, those are what do you call strange circumstances, but they're, they're natural births. Jesus is like that. His birth is a natural birth, but it's in a strange circumstance. The second thing I want you to note about the birth of Jesus, him coming into the world, what this verse reminds us is that this day, I mean, it really, really happened. God really was born as one of us into, into the world. Francis Schaeffer, who was one of the great apologists of, uh, of the 20th century, Francis Schaeffer used to talk about the lower story and the upper story. He said the lower story are, is truth that's made up of the facts of history, things that really happened in certain times and place with particular people. The upper story, he said, are stories which refer to truth but aren't true. They're fables, like Aesop's fables or, or any of those um, myths, things that teach a moral truth. Many people look at, at Luke chapter 2 and they say it's an upper story. They say it's an upper story. One theologian said, uh, or one professor, theological professor said it's theological fiction, that it's a story made up to explain how, how Jesus was so... So different, right? Here's the point that I want you to see. This verse should make, bring us so much joy because this is not upper truth, everyone. This is lower truth. This really did happen. So the ancient creeds said things like this, that Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Born the way all the rest of us were born. But this is lower, this is lower truth. It really did happen 
as it says it happened. This is not upper truth where it's some sort of myth. It's not. So John the Apostle, when he described this, he said, in the beginning was the Word. You remember this from our John study? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was with God in the beginning. And then it says, and the Word became flesh, and the Word became a person. The Word became a baby, a tender, little, defenseless, Unable to care for itself, baby. God became that baby, lower truth, and dwelt among us. He lived with us, and we observed his glory. The glory as the, as the one and only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God became a human being in the truest and most literal sense. Paul would say of him in Colossians when he wrote to the church, he would say, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn above, uh, over all creation. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, verse 19. So when we read, unto us is born this day in the city of David, I want you to remember this is not a myth. This is not a, a nicely fabricated fable for us. This is a true story. And the central truth is that God came to live with us. And man, what joy that should bring us. Here's the third thing the verse tells us in, in, as we look in the details, why joy should come out of this verse. It's because, again, verse 11, today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you who is the Messiah, the Lord. The climax of the verse is, he, who's been born for you in the city of David? It's a Savior who is Messiah the Lord. The reason why this verse should bring such joy to our hearts is because God has sent a Savior for us. His purpose was to save us. His purpose was to rescue us. And so when Mary becomes pregnant by God, Joseph's a bit upset about it. You remember that? And uh, he really, he loves Mary, but he thinks Mary's been unfaithful to him. And so in that unfaithfulness, he could have actually had Mary killed. He could have been so angry that he publicly brings her forth, has her stoned for adultery. All he had to do was stand up and say, this baby is not mine, and they would have killed her. But he doesn't do that. The scripture says that he wants to put her away silently. That's not his intention at all to do that. But while he's in that mode, you remember the story, the angel comes to him and, and the angel says, Joseph, don't be afraid to take her because she hasn't been unfaithful to you. What's conceived in her is of God. But then the angel says this, she will give birth to a son and you are to name him Jesus because Yeshua, Yeshua saves, that's what that means, because he will save his people from their sins. See, Jesus, the reason this, this verse is so full of joy for us is, is not just because it's, a, it's the fulfillment of promises that God gave us. It's, it's not just because God became one of us so that we could know him. It was that, that he would be our savior. So you Bible scholars, what's the wage of sin? What's the penalty of sin? It's death, right? Over and over and over and over again, it says in the Bible that the penalty of our sin is death. The answer is we die, Death entered into the world through Adam, and the Bible says that we all die because of Adam, but then it says we all die because we're all sinners ourselves as well. Jesus came to rescue us from death. You know, well, you say he failed at that because we're all going to die anyway, right? Uh, no, he didn't fail because the promise of God is that he submitted to death so that one day God would raise us from the dead. So that God would overcome our death. God would credit to our account the death of Jesus and he promises to restore our lives. And when he restores my life and he restores your life, 
And again, I know that unbelievers find this fanciful, and that's fine, but it's the truth. When he restores our life, it will be with a permanence that will never come to an end. And it'll be in a permanence in a kingdom where he is our king and he is our Lord. Let me talk about death for just a second. Recently, I had a cardiovert. I think y'all know that. For those of you who don't know what a cardiovert is, it's when they shock your heart back into rhythm. On this particular day, when they do it, they have to put you to sleep. I remember when I woke up from it, my shoulders hurt, and uh, my, my doctor said that he had to do it twice. He had to shock me twice to get it back into rhythm. But, um, but while I'm laying there, and they're getting ready to put me to sleep, my doctor's trying to tell me a joke. He's actually my friend, and so he's trying to make me not be afraid, so he's telling me a joke. And I don't have the heart to tell him I already know the joke, so I know what the punchline is. But it's actually kind of good because I fell asleep before... Before, the, before you got to the punchline, okay? Of course, I, I knew the answer already. But here's my point. I, I, mean, I think he was trying to tell me a joke to make me not be afraid. But I want you to know something. I, I was absolutely not afraid at all. Because the doctor was about to put me to sleep, but I was absolutely convinced the doctor was going to wake me up again. That he was going to put me to sleep, but he was going to wake me up again. And I wasn't afraid. And I know you can say, well, weren't you afraid of maybe dying from the cardiovascular? My point is, when that doctor put me to sleep, I wasn't afraid because I knew he was going to wake me up in just a few minutes. And actually, it wasn't very long at all, and he did wake me up. The reason why we don't have to be afraid is because Jesus overcame death, and the Bible says that God is going to waken us from death. And we don't have to be afraid of death. So when you die, listen, Jesus is going to raise you from the dead, and he's going to give you permanence of life, and you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid of death at all. And this verse, and this verse here, it, I mean, it tells us, brings us so much joy because it tells us the purpose in Jesus' coming was to save us from our sin, which, whose penalty is death. And then finally, the last thing in this verse that I think brings out joy uh, in our hearts is because it reminds us of the personalness of God. What I mean, you know, believe it or not, personalness is actually a word. It wasn't showing up. It was showing up as a misspelling, but I looked it up. It's a word, and it means to have a personal relationship with someone. And this verse, I mean, this verse tells us about the personalness of God because I want you to notice it says, Today in the city of David, a Savior has been born for you, for you. And the people that he says this to, listen, the people that he's saying this to, he's saying it to the shepherds. And we've talked about this before, but I want you to, I want you to remember this. The shepherds are the low caste of their society. They're the outcasts or the people that nobody looked, nobody looked up to them. They all looked down on them. Doug Goins paints this picture of the shepherds of that day. Listen, the, the Judean shepherds were the lowliest of the low socially common men, a despised class with a bad reputation. Shepherds were known as thieves because they were nomadic, and as they moved their sheep around the country, sometimes they got confused about what was mine and what was thine. They were all tarred with the same brush, untrustworthy, dishonest. They were not allowed to give testimony in a Jewish court of law. Their work made it impossible for them to observe the Jewish ceremonial laws and temple rituals, so they were considered religiously unclean and unacceptable. It's pretty amazing to think that this heavenly invasion came to such a social outcast. Jesus says, Jesus says, the angel, I mean, excuse me, the angel says to them, to you, to you shepherds, has been born a savior. And what is he trying to say by this? He's trying to say by this announcement to them that Jesus is there for everybody. 
That Jesus has come for, that, that's what this is trying to tell us, that Jesus is there for everybody. He's come to save us all. And, and there's a great lesson in that for us. And the great lesson for that, for us, is it, it's not just the, you'd think he'd come for the privileged and the rich, right? I mean, that's, I mean, it's us against the rich and us against the privileged and us against the powerful and the popular, right? Because we all, most of us wouldn't put ourselves in that group. But Jesus came for the low folks to say to the low folks and the high folks, I've come for all of you. And, and, and if I could, can I say one more thing here about the personalness of God when he says I've come for you? I mean, he was talking to the shepherds, but I really think it's legitimate for us to look at that and say, I have great news of good, I have good news of great joy for you. And recognize that he means it's for you and it's for me. It's not just for the shepherds. It's for me personally. Jesus has good news for me. He died for me. He died for you. It's not enough to say that Christ just came for someone else. Jesus came for me. In fact, I want to say this. If you have the right relationship with God, then, then you, you recognize this, that Jesus came for you, and he died for you, and he conquered death for you, not just for someone else, but for you. Do you believe that? That Jesus died for you, that he was born for you. For, to, for you, there's a Savior born today in Bethlehem. Do you believe that it was for you? One of my favorite songs is, He Knows My Name. We haven't sung it in a while, but, but let me read you the words. It's, uh, I have a maker. He formed my heart. Before even time began, my life was in his hands. I have a father. He calls me his own. He'll never leave me no matter where I go. And then the chorus is, he knows my name. He knows my every thought. He sees each tear that falls, and he hears me when I call. Remember it? He knows my name. He knows my every thought. He sees each tear that falls. And he hears me when I call. Man, I sing that verse to myself all the time. He knows my name. As I was looking at that song, I found another song by Francesca Batticelli that I had forgotten about. I know this song, but she writes, and it's the same title, He Knows My Name. I don't need my name in lights. I'm famous in my father's eyes. Make no mistake, he knows my name. I'm not living for applause. I'm already so adored. It's all his stage. He knows my name. He knows my name. Jesus came for me. This verse is so filled with joy because it tells us of the promises of God, that God is faithful to keep his promises. And it tells us that God became one of us and lived and dwelt among us, and he was here with us. And it tells us that he died for me, for me, so that he could save me from the wages of my sin, my death. He came for my shepherd. Not just for those shepherds. He came for my shepherd. He came for me. He came for you. And I know I should stop right now, but I'm not going to stop. I got one more thing I got to say. Like the shepherds of then, we have a promise of his coming. 
See, I can't talk about that without talking. I can't look back there and talk about that without looking this way too, okay? So just like those shepherds sat there 700 years after the promise of God, we sit 2,000 years after another promise, and that is that he is coming again, that he is going to come back to the earth just like he came the first time. John 14, 1, this is Jesus. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. I am going away to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And when he comes, we're going to be in his presence, just like they were. He's coming for real. He's coming physically. He's coming materially in his full humanity. Today we walk with Christ through his spirit, but there is coming a day when Jesus will physically walk on our planet again. Acts 1.9, after he had said this, he was taken up, and as they were watching, a cloud took him out of their sight. And while he was gone, they were gazing up at heaven, and suddenly two men, it says, in white clothes stood by them, and they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This same Jesus who has been taken from you come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. He's coming back physically to step on the earth again and to be with us. And this time, to never leave us, to never go away. He will always be our king and we will always be with him. When he comes, his purpose will be to restore us, even to save us, if you will, to consummate the salvation that we all long for, to be made immortal, to be raised and never die again, to be raised in perfection so that we don't struggle with sin anymore. And in 1 Thessalonians, Paul says, for we say this to you by word from the Lord, we who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the archangel's voice and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive and who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, therefore we will always be with the Lord. We will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. You see, Jesus is coming. His promise is there. His coming will be that he will physically, personally return. And when he does, it is to raise us and to complete us and to inaugurate his kingdom. And I know there's nuances of details there that we don't all agree on. But he is coming to, to fix what is all wrong. And then finally, in my four points, the four points of joy from verse 11. And, and, and when he comes, he's coming for me. And he's coming for you. Revelation 3 says, When I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them, and they will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them, and he will be their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more, and, and grief and crying and pain will be no more, because the previous things have passed away. Jesus is coming for me because he knows my name. He knows me. In just a few days, Christmas is going to be here, and one of the things that most of us will probably do is exchange gifts out of love for one another. And imagine some of the children here are really looking forward to that. But uh, when you get a Christmas gift, what do you do with it? Do you sit it on the shelf, do nothing with it, or do you open it? You open it and receive it, right? 
Well, kind of like George was saying earlier this morning, you know, the greatest gift that's been given to us is, is Christ, it's Jesus. And you know what? You, you kind of have to, you have to open the gift and receive the gift, or the gift is, is not yours. 2,000 years ago, God sent his son to be the, I, there's a verse in Corinthians where it talks about being the ultimate gift. He's the ultimate gift. Jesus is God's Christmas gift to you and, and to me, if you would, okay? But you're not going to experience unless you're willing to open it, unless you're willing to receive it. If you give me a gift and, and I don't really receive it and I just put it on my shelf and I, and I don't really claim it as my own, it's, I mean, it's, you gave me a gift, but it's not really mine because I haven't opened it. In the same way, Christ gave his son for you, but unless you're willing to receive him, then the gift's not yours, and I know, I know, I look around and I say, well, all of you have received the gift, but maybe you haven't. And if you haven't, today is the day to do it. Today is the day to receive the gift of eternal life through Jesus. Today is the day to receive Jesus as the greatest gift. I close with this story. I believe I've told this story before. Uh, A.J. Gordon was a pastor in a church in Boston, Massachusetts. This has been a number of years ago. And uh, he met a boy on the street who was carrying a cage with some birds in it that were, you know, fluttering as he's walking down the street. And Gordon asked the boy, he said, uh, where'd you get those birds? And the boy said, I trapped them out in the field. He said, I trapped them out in the field. And he said, what are you going to do with them? He said, well, I'm probably going to mess with them and then I'm going to feed them to my cat. And uh, Gordon didn't really like that. And he said, hey, what if I buy those uh, birds from you? And the boy said, mister, you don't want them. They're just a couple of old wild birds, and they can't sing very well. And Gordon said, I'll give you two bucks for the cage and the birds. And the boy said, okay, but you're making a bad bargain. And so they made the exchange. The boy went on his way. Gordon went around to the backside of the church, and there he opened the, the door of the, of the cage, and the birds, uh, birds flew off. And the next Sunday, he took the empty cage into the pulpit to kind of illustrate his sermon about Jesus coming to seek and to save that which was lost. I can see where that would be a great object lesson. Um, and how Jesus paid for uh, our lives with his own death. And, uh, and then, then Gordon said this. Uh, he said, the boys told me the birds were not songsters. He said, but when I released them, it seemed to me they winged their way heavenward. Uh, and as they did, they were singing, redeemed, redeemed redeemed. The, the words of the angels to the shepherd were, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. And the source for unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Messiah the Lord. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you as we remember yet again at this time of the year the fact that you humbled yourself and became uh, like us so that we could have life with you. Not life with you just now, but life with you forever. And we thank you for that. Lord, we, uh, we pray that this Christmas season we will, um, for maybe someone here who hasn't received you, they'd be willing, Lord. But for those of us that have, that this would be an, uh, just another time of reflection where we just remember and say thank you, and remember, and love you, and remember, and just um, reaffirm that love for you, and give ourselves afresh to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.
Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing locally here in Surrey. Be blessed. Thank you.